with uh, Guy Donahay today. Um, I think we've been practicing since 1991, I read. Um, and first trip to Mysore, 93. Is that is that correct, Guy? Uh, yes, I think so. Yes, correct. And certified to teach, I think, when I was actually in Mysore, maybe you got a certification rather later, in 2000 and something. Uh, yes, that's correct. I mean, I was authorised... Um, in, actually, you know what? Um, I actually my first trip to Mysore was ninety one, the very first the, the year I actually started practicing. Right. And I was then authorized in ninety three. That's why I'm getting those dates a bit muddled up. Um, and then um, <clears throat> you know just continued as under that sort of uh, uh, qualification as a teacher until shortly before Pratibha Joyce died. Um, and then there was a kind of Sharat was kind of wanting to reorganize the whole certification uh, process and, uh, you know, just trying to organize a website and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. so he then reached out to everybody and said, Hey, you know, you've got to pay money and you've got to sign this contract and, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, yeah. got to pay it's some money. Certification. <laughs> I should really let, uh, let you guys intro yourselves because probably do a better job than me, kind of gleaning it from uh, <laughs> from the internet. Um, he's also well known as co-author of the book Guruji, which he has mixed feelings about now, which we might discuss during the course of this interview. And he runs Ashtanga Yoga Shala in New York. It was in Greenwich Village. Now he's just told me a new place on Broadway, and I think you've been teaching at Greenwich Village for many years. I think, right? No. I moved here in '98. '98 of yeah. British heritage. So one of my own originally, well, not necessarily originally, originally, but you grew up in the UK, right? Correct, yes, in Sussex. In Sussex. Um, all right, so without further ado, we'll launch with the uh, most general and uh, springboard question. How did you get into yoga and why did it interest you? Hmm. Well, I suppose I've been interested in um, yoga philosophy for many years. Not necessarily, um, I didn't necessarily understand that it was called yoga philosophy, but I, I've been interested in, uh, in, in this kind of uh, thinking, way of thinking, or, or exploring the kind of ideas that yoga is uh, interested in um, since I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, mm. Started thinking about, you know, the nature of reality, what happens after you die, you know, what's the meaning of life, uh, so big questions like that. And um, just, just from nothing or from reading or from... Actually, from the kind of experience that I had as a kid, um, prior to that age, uh, as a young, you know, youngster, I was spending a lot of time out in nature and um, was just had a very, almost kind of ecstatic kind of experience through that, a very peaceful and, and beautiful kind of idyllic kind of experience. Um, and around the age of 10 or 11, um, there was a significant shift in my, my mind, the way my mind was started to work. And I see it as the kind of the birth of the intellect um, and starting to read the newspapers that my father would leave, leave lying around. And prior to that, I'd been very innocent. Um, I think you, say you have got a very nice um, um, description of that on your website that I read, actually. You know, very yeah. nice way of coming of age. And the, the, I think you mentioned a pond. You, you moved out of London and then you kind of in this kind of rural idyll, right? Right, yeah. And even, it was even kind of like, you know, they have these kind of meditations in yoga where you imagine yourself next to a, 
a mirror lake with uh, lotus flowers and swans swimming and, and stuff like that. You know, that, that there's a kind of yogic iconography which is used for meditation. So I used mm. to spend many hours just kind of fishing and looking at the lake and uh, being in a kind of trance-like experience. And I remember sort of feeling a kind of very expansive um, um, way of experiencing um, nature and my, my own mind. Um, and then I started reading my father's newspaper and I kind of was reading about famine and war and murder and all these kind of horrible things that human beings uh, you know, do. And uh, it sort of was totally shocking to my system. And interestingly, my it's sort of like, I don't know if it was just uh, an evolutionary moment, you know, in terms of childhood where you move from being in this kind of innocent world, you know, if it's a biological thing that you then start to develop your intellect. I know that there's a huge neuronal change that happens at that point. Prior to that moment in time, there's twice as many neural pathways are open. And suddenly there's... Around 10 or 11. Yeah, there's this catastrophic kind of pruning of these neural pathways. So about mm. 50% of them get cut off. Uh, and this is, this is connected with the development of the intellect and the ability to really kind of focus and use your mind in a, very, in a different kind of way. Right. Um, so I don't know if it was like, you know, nature or nurture, um, but it was a fact that happened at that moment. Um, and it's almost as though overnight I stopped having these beautiful experiences and I started feeling this kind of sense of kind of alienation and some harshness and, you know, you have to get a job and you have to, you know, the, the life looked kind of gray. Mm. Whereas before that it was very kind of expansive and beautiful and I didn't really feel any kind of boundary between my mind and nature and mm. it was all, you know, my dreams, my reality, it was all kind of like a kind of one. You know, so I think I was kind of experiencing some kind of yoga. So I had some kind of yoga experience at that time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I experienced that the loss of that is like really harsh. And it started a, like a search uh, for the nature of reality or, or to try and get back to a kind of experience of something which was much more beautiful and felt much more real to me uh, than what I was beginning to experience. Um, so that, that's, that, that started the search into philosophy and uh, science and uh, eventually sort of spiritual philosophy because I wasn't really exposed to any. Yeah, yeah. What kind of books do you start with? What, what well, actually, my first, my, first, my first sort of reaction was to ask people around me, to the, you know, my, like my parents and my teachers and so on. I didn't, wasn't really very satisfied with their answers. And uh, my first actually recourse was to science. I started studying science. I started studying, um, you know, through biology, through physics, through chemistry, whatever I could lay my hands on, I would, would, would read about to, as a kind of proof of what reality was all about. That's sort of the way I thought I'd find my, find my path. And I did that for a few years and then began to realize that uh, science actually also has a kind of limitation on it, that it's really... Uh, very speculative and even though what's presented to us is uh, very concrete and very final um, yeah. that these are all really theories and if you you know real true scientists um, uh, there's a lot of disagreement between them mm -hmm. and there's still a lot of exploration and uh, discovery no for instance we you know yeah. matter cannot be cannot be seen for instance 
dark matter. Well, so from there, how did you get to ending up in Mysore and practicing the starting Ashtanga yoga? What was your, what was your journey right that from was, that? That was, that was like a, an 18-year journey through these first... So anyway, I basically discovered that uh, science didn't really have the answers, and so I started exploring philosophy, existentialist philosophy. When I was turning about 13, 14, I began, began getting very interested in... Uh, Jean-Paul yeah. Sartre and uh, Camus and then that's, that's Herman Hesse and yeah. those kind of writers. Um, and uh, Nietzsche and these kind of, these, those kind of writers, uh, which was also bringing me towards more of an Eastern style of philosophy and uh, more, right. interested, more interest in uh, um, you know, phenomenology and the nature of mind and so on. You understood those, those philosophers at that, at that age. And most people can't understand that now. Well, I don't know if I understood them, but I found them very inspiring. <laughs> you read them anyway. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just really enjoyed it um, yeah. in terms of what it did to my imagination. Right. Mm. So I found it very stimulating. And, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so I moved then more towards uh, Buddhism and different areas, different elements of psychology I was studying. Um, uh, and eventually around about 18, um, I was beginning to read sort of yogic type texts and get more into esoteric philosophies and occultism and that kind of thing and started to try meditating. Um, but I was also, I was also exploring uh, the mind through drugs and hedonism and all kinds of other teenage type yeah. experiences. And so I found it very hard to meditate and also had a pretty negative impact on my health. Um, so coming to yoga was really a combined um, interest in finding something that would give me good health and would also support me uh, uh, in my meditation attempt. Mm. Um, so, I, yeah, that's how I came to Hatha Yoga. To, to yeah. Hatha yeah. Yoga. yeah. Mm. So that was a long story. <laughs> no, it's a nice story. Um, so starting in Hatha Yoga, and then, what, I mean, did you, did you find a career? You didn't, I mean, you kind of dismiss science earlier on, or what were you doing? And then how did you get to, you know, I'm always kind of fascinated what people were doing kind of before, because often there seems to be a, quite a schism between, uh, you know, past life and then becoming, you know, becoming a yoga teacher or, you know, finding Ashtanga yoga and kind of, you know, what, what, what were you doing beforehand? Uh, I wouldn't say it was a, there was a schism. I would say it was like a gradual progression and more of a, incorporation of new ideas. Uh, I still am really fascinated by science and I like to read a lot about, you know, what's going on and uh, exploring all the different avenues, uh, neurology and chemistry and physics and, and so on. That still fascinates me. Um, and of course, you know, there's been a lot of popular writing in, in recent decades about uh, the connection between uh, consciousness and matter and, uh, um, you know, Eastern philosophy and 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 Western science and the overlaps between them. So um, it's more of an expansion. I think uh, as a teenager, I kind of I felt I think I felt that I saw the limitation as a path, exclusive path, and that uh, and it coincided with being a teenager and getting in, you know, starting to feel stuff, you know, starting to feel intense emotions and and feeling alienation and uh, getting more into the sort of philosophical aspects, whereas I'd been a little bit more detached perhaps when I was um, younger. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that's been a, just a, a continuous theme. 
Mm. Um, and I, I don't feel as though that, 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 that there's ever really been a schism there. It's just uh, incorporated more. Um, so you're still teaching Ashtanga yoga um, and you, you practice for, for, well, since 93 at least, Ashtanga yoga. Well, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Well, 91. Yeah, 91. So what do you say that... What, is it, what has it brought to your life? Or how would you say that you'll be, you know, kind of like, how do you see if you looked back and you hadn't found it and you've been the kid trying to find it out with science or whatever else, how, apart from the, the health front, inevitably, you, you know, you solved a, a lot of those health issues, I guess. What, what's it done for your life? What would you say has changed with the keeping up the practice? Well, obviously, you know, becoming a yoga teacher has... Um, I think, you know, one of the things about being a yoga teacher is it's, it's so supportive of yoga practice. Mm. Um, you know, practicing yoga becomes a duty, uh, not just uh, something that uh, may fascinate you and that you may not have so much discipline to follow. But once you become a teacher, in my opinion, anyway, um, you, have a, you have a duty to, um, to practice. I, I, would never, I would never teach unless I practice first. I feel like how can you teach yoga unless you, you know, it's coming from, uh, your experience. You still get up early in the morning every day. Yeah. And what, I mean, what, has that, has that practice changed over the years? Or, you know, obviously, you know, you've yes. done it for a long time now. What are you, you know, what are you doing now? And how has that changed? Or how has that evolved? It's changed hugely. Um, well, another thing that it's given me is finally I've got to, got back to my meditation practice. So I started off wanting meditation practice and then kind of dived into a very strong asana practice with Patabi Joyce saying, you know, mad attention, you know, forget about that. Uh, just do your practice. Uh, all this coming, you know, yeah. uh, I, I sort of drank that Kool-Aid for a while and just did intense practice and kind of forgot to some right. extent yeah. about trying to meditate and then gradually developed a pranayama practice first. Um, he wasn't my first pranayama teacher, but uh, through, through him mainly I developed a strong pranayama practice and then right. So you learned it through him. Wow. Yeah, then afterwards uh, through, through other teachers also. And then that really evolved more and more towards meditation, which is my main practice today. So uh, right. I, I get up early and sit. Uh, that's really my main practice. And then I do some asana practice, which is more just uh, maintenance. Pretty light, pretty lightweight and uh, just uh, to feel good in my body and to prepare me for, I do, you know, full on, my saw assisting for you know three three plus hours every morning yeah. so getting my body yeah, to warm up for that yeah 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 and was that i mean you did the party yeah. on Tommy joyce so that i mean what was that like because that's that was that's well renowned for being pretty intense uh kind of pranayama right breath holds and you know yeah it was very intense but also kind of um i feel like even though Tabi Joyce has definitely been extremely influential in my practice and in my teaching, uh, at the same time, I learned, I think most of what I learned was how not to do it. And um, there are many things that I discovered through him, uh, which were, you know, wrong approaches in, in teaching and in practice. And uh, one of those was in his teaching of pranayama. So, yeah, he would only teach pranayama to advanced students uh right. students have been practicing for more than 10 years uh um and he would go right in with very intense breath holds and long long breath retentions 
Yeah. And I think this is really a tragedy because for, you know, for 95% of students, they will never get to pranayama through the Ashtanga practice. You know, they would not with him. And I think that pranayama is a beautiful, so wonderful... Teach, I mean, you would teach it alongside the asana for a beginner up to advanced, you know, straight away, would you? Not, not complete beginners. Um, uh, but I do, I mean, I, I keep it, I would definitely keep it open to beginners. And uh, one of the beautiful things about the Ashtanga practice that Pataba Joyce developed is that there is really a kind of integrated pranayama, although, you know, he regarded, he would say pranayama is only when you hold the breath. But uh, the vinyasa methodology uh, I see as a pranayama. Ayama means to increase or lengthen. Yes. Yeah. So lengthening the breath, controlling the breath, synchronizing breath with movement. This is all, I, I think, kind of pranayama. Um, one of the things that I teach um, many, many of my students is uh, uh, a kind of Uddiyana, I call it Uddiyana Kriya rather than Uddiyana Banda, Agnisara and Nauli, uh, which is what I, I learned um, before I went to Mysore uh, yeah. as my starting practice. And uh, it's a really fantastic uh, practice. And uh, it that obviously involves Kumbhaka, involves holding the breath. Yeah. Right away, three bandhas. Um, it's not a pranayama as such, but it's uh, it's, it's it's connecting you with uh, breathing in a very. Calm. Like a, if if someone was kind of thinking of starting a pranayama practice, and a lot of people like even I'm no expert, they ask me to do the pranayama, and you know I'm reluctant to do so. But what you know because I don't really know enough about it. What's your advice? But you know, I mean, everyone wants to start as soon as they get into Ashtanga. At least after a few months, comes up the question: What's this thing, pranayama? You know, and how can I learn that? And how should I start? Where should I start? You know, or try to start in the first place? Is it for me? Is it? Yeah. Well, I think you know you can only teach what you know, and you have a duty not to try and teach something that well, I'm not going to teach it. Don't worry. <laughs> what's your What's your advice for uh, for a student starting it? You know, where should they start? You know? Well, they have to they have to they have to start with an experienced uh, practitioner who, who can teach them. So that's the first thing. You have to find yeah. somebody who has experience and who has done it for for some good length of time. Just as with asana practice, um, I, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think in general, you know, um, yoga has been um, really disconnected from its roots. So uh, finding an authentic teacher who can um, who can uh, give you good instruction is, is very difficult. Um, also, because today uh, yoga is really uh, synonymous with asana practice, uh, having been kind of disconnected from its philosophical, spiritual roots, um, there isn't really that much place for pranayama. Where is pranayama supposed to take you? Yeah, yeah. I think all of us who teach Ashtanga yoga feel like a, a kind of duty to, to sort of integrate um, the other eight limbs or the other seven limbs somehow into our teaching. And so we feel connected automatically yeah. or want to study or want to incorporate those things. So mm-hmm. but where is our expertise coming from? We need to be connected with teachers. So I think you know many students who go to Mysore um, also have other teachers. I know Sharad is beginning to teach a little bit of very rudimentary pranayamas. Yeah. Um, and also very much for beginners as well. Um, mm-hmm. Not what Patabi Joyce would call pranayama, because you know he used to laugh at people and say, you know, just 
breathe in through one nostril. Oh. This is no pranayama. This is no pranayama. You would go, you know, so that's that's just a joke. You know, ah. you have to go, you know, deep into the intensity of it for it to be a pranayama. Nice. Uh, you wouldn't have liked Charat's um, approach to do the Nadi Shoda at the end of practice. He would not at all. Yeah. Ah. He wouldn't have called it pranayama. Said, it's only pranayama if there's kumbhaka involved. Like he was right. very, very traditional to the Yoga Sutra. You know, he was. You know, he always used to say, you know, "This is uh, Ashtanga Yoga is Patanjali Yoga." The mm. Yoga Sutra is the source book for you know uh, understanding what what I'm teaching, what, what he was teaching. Yoga Sutras, he said, was the source. Yeah. Right. Yes. Hmm. So you're going to study anything, study Yoga Sutra. Right. Repeatedly, hmm. he'd say that. Going back to the Ashtanga idea, that you know, there's eight limbs, and I think obviously, well, <laughs> the other seven limbs often get off, uh, forgotten. Um, not just the pranayama, but but the rest of it as well. Yeah. Um, well, how would you say that the yoga asana affected or influences yoga lifestyle more generally? You know, I mean, it's easy to practice yoga on the mat and then not connect it at all to daily life. How? How do you see it kind of flowing out off the mat into influencing daily life and ought it to influence daily life at all? Um, well, I think it, it, in various ways, uh, you know, we have this wonderful practice which integrates not just uh, pranayama, uh, but also uh, dharana, pratyahara. Um, for instance, the gazing point, the drishti, um, are... Um, Initiating pratyahara to some extent, uh, the focusing on the bandhas also. Uh, there is also, you know, you can't do anything without concentration. <clears throat> Dharana is like a fundamental aspect of practicing yoga right from the start. Um, uh, various aspects of yama, niyama can be taught or can be learned through asana practice. Tapas is one, obviously, mm. intense purifying practice, discipline. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, another aspect of tapas and ahimsa is a vegetarian uh, diet. So food is a, a hugely important uh, aspect in our health and uh, both physical and mental health and well-being. It has to be vegetarian. Am I a vegetarian? No, it has to be vegetarian. I'm assuming you are. Um, yeah. from people that might not be vegetarian practicing yoga. What would well, you say on that? Sorry to put no. you on the Vegetarianism is the ideal diet right. for the practice. It's the ideal diet for a meditator um, right. because flesh foods um, have a disturbing impact both on the body and the mind. Yeah. It may be that some people have a long history of meat eating or um, have some health issues or are working in an environment which requires a lot of strength and a lot of intensity. Um, where meat eating might be, I don't know about appropriate, but supportive of what of what their you know what their constitution, what they're doing. Um, so, you know, it's just a question of what's what's ideal and what you want out of yoga practice. So, for a lot of people, what they want out of yoga practice is um, good health, um, relaxation, to look good. You know, I think a lot of people want to look good these days through through yoga practice. How many people want to meditate? I don't know. Not, not so many, but if that's your interest, then vegetarianism is very, very supportive of that. And, um, you know, in the traditional teachings, you know, we talk about tapas as this, you know, we think about people holding up their arm in the air and, you know, withering for holding it up for 10 years, that yeah. kind of nonsense. But typically um, the main 
tapas that's, that's talked about in yoga practice is vegetarianism or intense uh, focus on diet. And not only vegetarianism, but how you eat, when you eat, um, these are equally important. So, you know, even if you eat good food, but if you're in a horrible environment, a dirty environment, in an intense, if you're in a very bad mood when you eat, they say food feeds mood, you know? Mm. So it doesn't necessarily help you get into a yogic state of mind. So anyway, um, asana practice, we talk about how asana practice influences other things. So, you know, when you're trying to learn Marichasana D and you're putting a heel in your stomach and, you know, your stomach's groaning under the weight of uh, yesterday's heavy food, mm. uh, you learn that you have to eat differently. You learn how you have to sleep differently. You learn that you have to get up in the morning. You learn how you have to do it every day. Uh, you learn how not to hurt yourself. You learn some kind of practices of ahimsa. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually, it's interesting because it's very often it's our ambition that drives us to learn these lessons, which are yogic. You know, you want to do the pose, you want to get to the next pose, you want to get to the next series. And that that's the drive. The ego is the drive. But yeah. Um, the, the practice is so beautiful in the way it can be evolved uh, that it actually teaches uh, necessary steps to let go of the meat eating, to let go of the, you know, excess. Broken excess food. on the wheel of yoga. What's that? Broken on the wheel of yoga. Broken on the wheel of yoga. Yeah, broken and, and, and recreated. Reborn. Yeah, recreated. Reborn, yeah. Um, you touch upon another aspect that I think of interesting with tradition, and I think you mentioned something between them. Um, that's the ideal, and I wanted to kind of talk about a little bit about tradition and the way that it's you know, taught in Mysore, and whether there's uh, tradition as an ideal and tradition as it's uh, applied pragmatically. If you understand the kind of question, can I mean obviously your your practice and the way that you've been taught was traditional. You liked something about tradition. Um, and you wrote the book Guruji, which was a kind of um, a celebration of the tradition of Ashtanga Yoga. Um, and subsequently, you've had mixed feelings about that. Um, are you more pragmatic in the approach to the ideal and tradition now? I mean, how could you say something along that, along those lines, you know, in a rough and briefer way than I know that you're well documented of having done so recently? <laughs> I'll be a little slightly briefer. Um, well, in the first place, I think it's a kind of a nonsense talking about tradition because, excuse, you know, excuse me for saying that, for you putting the question like that, okay. because it starts with Patabi Joyce. That's just one generation. So how can we talk about tradition? Right. Um, it's a methodology that he developed and it doesn't go back to Krishnamacharya. That's a different, that's a totally different tradition. Now there may be elements in teaching yoga, which go back eons, but, uh, I think, you know, Pratap Joyce was quite an innovator and uh, introduced maybe not new ideas, but new combinations, new permutations. New, new... In your studies, you found that you, your conclusions that Pratap Joyce kind of um, instigated the system that we call Ashtanga Yoga. Absolutely, yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, there were element, definitely elements there in Krishnamacharya's teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, Pratap Joyce put it together as a curriculum for the Sanskrit College uh, four-year curriculum, you can see that, you know, David Williams and Nancy Gilgoff have publicized that uh, original curriculum, which is actually different from the current, um, currently taught Ashtanga sequences. So, you know, the tradition has actually changed, tradition quotes has changed since yeah. uh, 2000 or 
I guess the 90s or 80s or something like that. Um, sequences have changed. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, what is, can we really talk about tradition? Uh, I don't really think so. I wouldn't call it tradition. There's a methodology. Does the methodology work? Uh, to some extent, I see the, I see the um, sequences more as the kind of blueprint you can draw from as a, as a teacher. If someone comes to your Charlotte, would you, I mean, you're still teaching Ashtanga yoga, but would you be teaching them other things or? I've come to see uh, several different uh, strands of interest amongst students. There are those who, you know, are really looking for um, a strong practice, looking to develop strength, looking to develop flexibility and uh, have a certain ambition. They're looking for more exercise type um, practice. And I, I teach them a traditional, pretty much traditional Ashtanga yoga uh, practice that I learned from Patabi Joyce. Yeah. There are those who are needing therapy, um, <clears throat> whether it's um, psychological or, or physical. And for those, there's really an adaptation of that uh, practice, um, uh, maybe leaving certain poses out, maybe changing sequences around to some extent, maybe using more hands-on right. adjustments and uh, um, d differences in breathing uh, approaches. Um, and then there are those who are, who are interested in spiritual practice. And for those, I've been, uh, I've been sort of developing for myself uh, through my other teachers, um, a practice of integrated pranayama, mudra, and meditation in asana practice. Uh, so I've started to teach that to those students who are interested in more in sitting and meditating and using a asana practice, which totally supports and moves them in that direction. And I actually see the nice room. You, that's that's all going on in this one room. All these different, yeah. Uh, you know, each and each student is taught individually. Yes, yes. But you find, I mean. I suppose I kind of wanted to go slightly on the pragmatics of it again. So if, if those that, I mean, just, you know, on a, even on a personal level, those that can, those that can, you will teach them, you wouldn't change it. You're happy with it, the sequence. If, if you uh, and they can do it, then that's okay, you, you know? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But I, I, again, I'd qualify that by saying that every person is individual. Yeah. Um, I have students from their teens into their 70s uh, students with all different type of health um, issues, uh, all different kinds of uh, um, aspirations and concerns. And each person is really approached and treated differently. And what happens when you, you know, been practicing for 10 years and you kind of plateau? It's not really about teaching anymore. It's, uh, it's just about, you know, keeping the space for them and giving them some adjustments which make them feel good. And uh, it's not necessarily about developing a practice any further. Um, in terms of yeah. asana practice, you know, yeah. maybe there'll be some incremental changes, but yeah. once you've got something that works, why, you know, why would you want to change it? I know a lot of people kind of get bored and they want to mix it up and do different things, but you know, the idea of meditation is to bring your mind into the same place day after day uh, until uh, you break through to some other kind of reality. But if you're constantly cha changing it around, just as if you're constantly changing your food, then, uh, you know, you're not getting any kind of consistent movement in any any particular direction so it's really all about the student's aspiration and uh over time what i see is that even though students may come in and not too many students are attracted to me just purely for a physical practice uh, they're usually interested in something you know because of what i'm presenting as my interest they're, they're usually kind of 
attracted yeah. to that. Mm. But I see even those who come more for a physical practice, uh, eventually, uh, you know, yoga breaks them down and uh, they, they, they inevitably move more towards a, a spiritual uh, or at least mindful type of practice. In a few kind of, uh, again, uh, briefly, what was it? So what does Ashtanga or just what does yoga mean for you now? Like and how obviously you were more involved in the physical um, and now it seems you're very involved in the meditation. What's the element of yoga that's run throughout? A few. You know, uh, well, no, the, the, the philosophy has always been really interesting to me. Mm. Um, the psychological aspects always be interesting to me. Uh, I started off with an interest in in supporting and uh, developing a meditation practice, and I kind of let that go for a number of years, mm. uh, and then it re-evolved or re-developed re, um, through um, practicing pranayama and and meeting uh, um, my other teachers who helped me to develop a proper understanding um, about yoga. Um, you know. People often say, you know, you know, why does the Bhagavad Gita talk about union and uh, Patanjali Yoga Sutra talking about uh, um, arresting the mind and uh, a kind right. of disunion, kaivalya? Yeah. Um, yeah. Patam Joyce always used to say it's all one, you know, um, different students with different capacities for understanding, getting different, different perspectives on the teaching, different language being presented to different people at different times with different needs, but it's all one. So... Mm. You know, there are a lot of good elements in what Patabha Joyce taught. Um, uh, I think a sh slight shift in emphasis for me uh, was important, um, uh, whereas I felt very much on a kind of linear path of, uh, you know, develop asana practice. That's what he wanted us to do, you know, advance, 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 work harder, harder, harder. And, uh, you know, it takes a while of banging your head against the brick wall to realize actually softer, softer, softer. Have so you, you modified your own teaching then? I mean, is that how you started? That you started in a similar kind of ilk to that leg's going to go behind the head, which is the last thing I do kind of style. And you, have you softened your own teaching? Or, you know, how Definitely. That Definitely. Right. Uh, my teaching has just changed gradually over the years. Um, you know, we weren't given a teacher training, so we just kind of emulated our teachers. And, and as I said... In the beginning, Patabi Joyce taught me a lot of things that uh, how not to do it, but uh, how to do it that was that's that was a difficult you know a different different thing to develop, and that comes through your own personal experience and exposure to other types of teachings, anatomy studies, and uh, perhaps a bit of study of Iyengar or um, you know other other influences. Gradually, uh, you develop the wisdom to know <clears throat> what's appropriate and what works, and also, I think it's a question as a teacher of developing an idea about, in the first place, about what you want to get out of yoga yourself as a practice, right. and then what you feel capable of sharing with others. Um, most of us don't really know what yoga is um, for the first couple of decades of practice. We're just, you know, because yoga changes your mind to think differently. You can't understand yoga intellectually. You can't even understand yoga by practicing asanas. You have to develop all the limbs of yoga in order to get a get, get, to get a kind of concept of where is it going what's it all about um you know so it takes time and um <clears throat> no that can't be answered in two sentences even though <laughs> your request <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, you mentioned a couple of times on, you know, how you do it differently. What Can you give an example of how, like, maybe original kind of teaching methodology and how you might amend that now um, without being too damning, perhaps? <laughs> or you could be damning as you want. <laughs> I well, mean, we have touched a little bit on, on your, you know, things you might amend in the old Mysore style. I'm happy to do so. So maybe, uh, yeah, speak a little bit about that if you, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Um, you know, I got injured pretty badly by Patabi Joyce in the, my, on my very first trip, my second trip. And I, you know, was sort of taught to and sort of talk, talked myself into just surrendering to receiving right. what was being offered to me, what was being given to me in the yeah. belief that this was an authentic and pure and uh, traditional method. Right. It took me a while to recognize and realize and actually a long time to really acknowledge that uh, he had injured me severely and uh, had adjusted how, me. How was that done, if you don't mind me asking? How did I learn that? No, how, what were you injured? How, what was the injury? Badakanasana, I think I read, wasn't it? Yeah, Badakanasana, Marichasana D, on my very first trip, he, he cranked me into Marichasana D and uh, tore my meniscus. You know, I'd been there about three weeks. Right. And, uh, you know, I couldn't walk uh, for a couple of weeks after that. And the you thing is, you know, yeah. No, but the thing is, you know, this is the thing. So um, he then, quotes, healed me within two weeks. He said, you come back every day and uh, um, don't leave, come back. So I, I kind of trusted him because I'd invested all my, you know, sold everything to go to India and yeah. invest in a six-month trip to India. I couldn't go home. So, I, you know, I, I, I was invested in it. So I went back each day and he adjusted and put me in the pose and he just said, uh, trust me, surrender, breathe. And I did and I was pain-free and he put me in the pose again. And wow. after about 10, 10, 15 days, I could walk again. I mean, I couldn't walk the first day. And I, really? He was completely loose and just sort of... And so he kind of healed me and I, it gave me faith that... Uh, um, it was a healing methodology. And I took on also responsibility, a sense of responsibility, because I was a you know, toxic individual. I, had, I was very sickly and I was, you know, I was not a pure vegetarian, yeah. you know. Um, I had a lot of, lot of uh, Western-style thinking about me um, and uh, a lot of stress and, and, and so on. So you really was injured, uh, injured and healed by... It wasn't that the meniscus was not healed, but I was able to use learn right. how to use my body to move my body in such a way that I wouldn't have pain. Right. So I, I learned how to use my body differently, but the meniscus tear did not. Um, right. it took many years for it actually to properly heal, and it did heal actually and stronger than the other knee, which also subsequently uh, I tore the meniscus on the other knee as well. Yeah, <laughs> both knees in the early days too. Yeah. So anyway, um, so he, he, the first thing was that the, the adjustments were a little bit clumsy and uh, quite aggressive and strong, not always, but sometimes. Mm. And when I went back to start teaching, um, I started teaching very early on. Uh, I'd only been practicing for a, couple, for a couple of years or even less than a couple of years uh, before I started teaching and I got authorized. Um, I was also adjusting every every student in every pose, and they would walk out of class limping and come back into class limping. And then I began to think, well, wait a minute, this is not right. This is like this is how we. This is what we 
you know, in every pose. Yeah. Oh my god. Brilliant. Well, I do about every pose, but you know, a lot. A lot of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes the ridiculous, then, isn't it? Because people um, these days, kind of, you hear that you know people go to my son. You know, they complain, oh, I I never get one touch. You know. Um, right. Well, the class now. I mean, we had only eight people in the room, uh, and now there's. 60 or 100 or 500, oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure how many people yeah. Carry on the room anymore. So yeah. no chance of getting adjusted. But, uh, you know, we had Patabi Joyce and Sharat both. So it was like a one to four ratio between student and teacher. Um, so we were adjusted in pretty much every pose. Um, and we also, we'd, we'd get a massage every day. We'd lie in the hammock all day long. We'd go to the pool. We would relax in my soul. We would just totally relax. Whereas back in the West, people had to go to work. They had real lives. And their bodies couldn't recover in the same way. And they weren't necessarily so invested as we were. You know, they'd stick around for a couple of weeks and then they'd be in pain and they, they wouldn't come back. Mm. So that was the first thing. <clears throat> Actually, that was the second thing. The first thing was, um, you know, right from the beginning, you could see that... Uh, Tabby Joyce's adjustments were really on the edge. I didn't think of them as sexual assaults at the time, but mm. um, they were very, you know, um, it's not something we could have done, you know, touching, touching right. across the body. Um, yeah. So right from the beginning, we, you know, I definitely shifted my way of adjusting. Um, you saw that, I mean, very, very early on, it was obvious that these adjustments were quite intimate. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it grab your butt, you know, it's, it's not a very comfortable sort of, mm. you know, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. Yeah, right. It's yeah. very intimate. Um, yeah. And we trusted him to do that. And we felt that what he was doing was uh, was good and benign and helpful and et cetera. Mm. But we knew that going back to the West that, uh, you know, you'd be accused yeah. of sexual assault immediately or... Uh, inappropriateness or whatever, you know, whatever was the current, you know, way of speaking about those things in those days. Yeah. Um, That people would be like, this person's really weird touching me like that, you know? It wouldn't have been acceptable. But somehow in that environment, um, and everyone was surrendering to it, you know, there were people who'd been there for, coming there for decades and they were like, you know, it's all cool, you know? So, you know, just surrender. Kind of like it's a context you don't know, I suppose, right? So it's like, well, there's so much that you don't know in the in a in a, such a different place that you just, just kind of you kind of let your mind go in a way, right? Like if you walked into a studio in the West and someone was doing that, you'd have a context around it, you know. Yeah. But there, there's so much kind of exoticism and you know mysticism around the experiences. Like you just let your mind go altogether. I expect, I suppose, maybe that's how. And it also, goes. you know, the adjustments were so powerful that you know it kind of blew your mind a little bit so why, why were know, they powerful just not just in strength i'm assuming just in terms of opening the body up like uh, and, and what effect what impact that had on your mind and what impact that had on your flexibility and how quick your evolution was hap- quickly your evolution was happening so we were in a also i think the type of person is attracted to ashtanga is uh, uh, typically uh, quite aggressive and ambitious yeah. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it answered that um, desire in us to, to move quickly. Um, we wanted quick results. So it seemed like his method was, uh, you know, fast track. Mm. You know? And when you talk about it kind of intense and opening of the body, it was that literally brute force or was it more subtle than that? Well, the subtle part was our own response. So, you know, when he... So you didn't have any sort of magic touch in your eyes? 
No, he well, he had, he, you know, he had his bad days. I think is the problem. Uh, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, I mean, with some students, he's extremely gentle, and yeah. uh, the, the, his methodology, I think, uh, his approach um, in terms of uh, the technique of opening the body was was intelligent in the sense that it was effective. Uh, I don't know if it's intelligent in the sense that it was causing injuries to people, um, but it wasn't causing injuries to everybody every day. It was occasionally uh, causing injuries. And of course, you know, injuries last, can last a lifetime. Mm. Uh, so it's not, not as though it's, it's finished once it's happened, but they didn't happen all the time. They only happened to have to happen once for you to be in pain for you know, in some cases, 20, 30 years. In my case, in cert- with certain injuries, uh, I continue to feel pain for a couple of decades and longer. Um, but, uh, you know, we didn't frame it in, those, in that context. So I think he was really onto something. And some of the, most of the time, he was fairly, uh, I won't say subtle, but fairly um, uh, effective in, in, in doing that. And uh, some of the time he was too aggressive and causing injury. And some of the time he was a bit clumsy. I mean, he was already almost 80 when I met him. So, you know, he was an old man. So mm-hmm. he was beginning to lose his uh, um, agility and yeah. uh, he was a bit heavy getting up and down off the floor and his health wasn't the best. So, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, sometimes he was also, you know, we should have recognized this at the time, but he wasn't this kind of serene yogi gruff <laughs> and you know bad tempered at times and not not all the time but you know he, he was you know he had his moods and sometimes yeah. he would be in a bad mood and he'd be like you know just shove you into a pose especially if you queried him especially if you questioned his approach or especially if you were ambitious mm-hmm. and wanted to do the next pose or something or you know he just shut up and just do it and he'd just like shove you into a pose and you know that that would be it and then of course yeah. He may be limping for the next uh, few months or years or however long. So he had a technique, and I learned that technique from him. And then I uh, had to refine it, and both in terms of where I touched the body, and in terms of how I um, how I applied the adjustments. And then we also learned as as students. So, for instance, after he injured me in Marichasnadi, and uh, I had to do it every day. And he would, you know, look me in the eye and just say, okay, you got to trust me, relax and breathe. You know, mm-hmm. so typically what happens if you're anxious is you start breathing, you hold your breath or, mm-hmm. you know, you start shaking or whatever. So in that moment of total surrender and, and finding a way to breathe, I think that was the subtlety often that was required. If you were going to survive the kind of adjustment you're getting is you had to find that subtlety within yourself to totally melt Mm-hmm. in response to that. And of course, a lot of people today are saying, oh my God, that is just horrendous. Um, but, you know, we went in there with a sort of beginner's yeah. mind, innocent, it's, without, it's, knowing, it's yeah. without knowing what was safe. You know, I was a complete beginner. So, I no I mean, to, to bring it back to, to a literal sense again, like if you're teaching Marie Charleston D, for example, these days, you don't look someone in the eye and say surrender, I'm assuming. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> Uh, no, you don't say surrender, but the, you know, the, the, the technique around breathing and the technique around moving the body with the breath, um, is very similar. So, you know, you, you know, let's say 
you got the you got the student one foot and half lotus, uh, the knee bent, and yeah. ready to get into the pose, and you're holding on to their arm or their hand, mm. and then say, okay, now inhale, take a deep breath, and now on the exhale, you're going to be able to relax, and on the exhale, you're able to gently, smoothly pull the arm, um, you know, the, the the torso towards the to, mm. towards the leg, and then wrap the arm around the back and help them to bind the hand. That is done on the exhale. So specific movements, you can't do that on the inhale because as you're inhaling, you know, the, the abdomen's yeah. expanding, it's pushing against the foot that's in lotus and the student is actually resisting the movement. So certain movements happen with either the inhale or the exhale. And uh, so you have to utilize the breath. I see the breathing as kind of lubrication that gets the student into the pose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you experience resistance, you honor that. You know, I honor that. If I experience resistance in the student, like right. I'm not going there, I'm mm. too afraid, mm. or my body is too stiff, or, you know, I'm very careful about teaching the pose when I feel the student's ready. Patabi um, Joyce, Joyce would say, don't resist. You know, right. it's like, there's, no, there's no resistance. You are going there. Right. I'm taking you there. I, you know, I don't think any of us do that. Maybe some people do, but... We, we, we should never do that. Um, that's going to break something. So, if, you know, would you carry on with the sequence? I mean, you know, again, you know, kind of rather kind of mundane, literal level, can you carry on? Take no. up the D and, and, and move to Navasana, or, or if you see that they're sitting there and they combined, but there's no a function in the movement, it's just a shape. Would you take it and suggest something more approachable for a, to get the same kind of sense of twist? Or I, I mean, you know, actually on a personal level, as a teacher myself, it was kind of quite interesting to how you would work on that around that. I mean, that's obviously one of the particular postures that people struggle with. Yeah. Mm. I, I've definitely changed my approach a little bit. Uh, whereas um, I used to see it as a very kind of linear process, mm. I would not teach the next pose until the pose before was perfected. In that sense, going back to the idea of lineage, uh, I used to teach students with the idea that they would go to Mysore at some point. Um, I wouldn't necessarily send them there, but that if Patabi Joyce saw their practice, he would say, He's, they've been taught well, they've been taught appropriately. So I would follow his methodology, which would be to keep people, keep someone at Marie Chastity the whole life long if they couldn't bind the pose. Mm-hmm. Um, Today, I approach that a little bit differently. I think uh, my, first, my first interest is in seeing if we can take the linear route. Is that going to work for the student? <clears throat> and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it will take three or four months staying at the pose. And I think the beauty of you know, the approach that we learned in Mysore is uh, you know, if people do want it, uh, they will make changes in their lifestyle, as I mentioned before. They'll change their diet. They will lose a bit of weight. They will um, uh, get control over their digestive system, which is often, not always, yeah. this is often the obstacle, Marichas Nadi. The heel will not sink into the belly because uh, it just feels very uncomfortable because there's undigested food has not been eliminated. So it's, it's one of those poses which can be a great teacher or teacher or can be a, you know, a motive to make significant lifestyle changes. Uh, and th- this is wonderful because, you know, food is hugely important, as I said before. I think actually food is more important than asana. I actually think the lifestyle changes that you make, especially diet, 
have a much bigger impact than the asanas that you're doing. Yes, it's like a kind of holding structure that makes you kind of behave yourself, basically. It's also right, like you have to have a routine, you know, and everything that you do that kind of implicates um, that routine, um, you feel it. You know, it's a measuring stick on a daily basis, isn't it? Um, Obviously, as a chef myself and and a huge interest in in food and eating, um, I always ask every person that I interview about their tips for food and and perspective on diet. Can you say anything about the way that you've learned to um, to eat successfully for your own health? And, and any any ideas for anyone else struggling with food and, and what to eat? Well, the what to eat is is fairly straightforward, I think. <clears throat> There's a lot of information out there about uh, correct, the good yogic diet. And I don't think one has to be too uh, worried about different doshas and different... Uh, um, uh, I mean, obviously, people do have intense health issues which they need to address. But the general yogic diet is a triadoshic diet which suits all doshas. Um, and to some extent, you do have to make adaptations depending on your constitution. But in general, I think uh, the diet aspect uh, is, is pretty well established. I think what's much more important is how much you eat and when you eat and how you eat. These are hugely important factors. Um, so, you know, the yogi's advice to eat, <clears throat> to only fill the stomach uh, one uh, three quarters uh, or half full with food and a quarter with liquid, for instance. Um, you're advised to eat less. Uh, and uh, as we know today with uh, a current um, uh, epidemic uh, that's, that's all around the world, one of the most, one of the worst um, influences of an adverse outcome is bad diet and overeating <clears throat> in the COVID-19 uh, uh you know, getting serious, um, serious uh, symptoms uh, in the in the coronavirus is the result of bad food mainly. So, under, you know, typically everybody overeats. They don't necessarily show that by getting overweight, but mm. this creates a huge stress on the body, mm. and um, also bad you know bad diet is also uh, uh, affecting people's minds and bodies, uh, making them toxic. Um, Stop overeating if you feel, I mean, because it's not easy for people, right? Like, this is a subject of a book I'm writing that's basically, you know, that's kind of begging the question, right? You've got these tendencies and habits. Well, you're not doing them for no reason, right? Like, you're doing them to justify some inner state or sense of lack or sense of direction, right? Like, I mean, we use food in all different ways. How do you get on the straight and narrow with eating? Because it's not easy. I mean, it's a simple thing, food, but it's not easy to be simple. (laughs) Well, there's a concept in yoga called mitahara, which right. means measured food. Mm-hmm. So just as you know, with your asana practice, you've got a, uh, you've got a routine which is uh, set out for you equally for eating. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, filling the stomach half, half full with food and a quarter with liquid is what re- yogis recommend. But the problem is that the stomach is elastic, so the stomach stretches, and we don't know what half full is and, uh, or three quarters full is. So there's another way, another way of measuring that is that's the number of mouthfuls of food that you eat. Oh my God. So there's a way of measuring how much food you should eat. So according to yoga and Ayurveda, uh, for your main meals, two meals a day, you should eat 32, they actually say handfuls because your hand is proportional to your body size. Right. Uh, but no one eats with a hand in the West. But you know, 32 forkfuls or spoonfuls of food per meal. Now that's for a serious practitioner. Um, obviously, not everyone's a serious practitioner. So, have you ever counted that? Have you ever kind of stuck to that? Yeah, 
Yeah, really? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the way I, that's the way I learned to understand what is, you know, the, the right amount of food for me. Um, and now I don't need to, actually, I don't need to actually measure it anymore because oh. I have a bowl, which I, or I, I just know how much I'm going to cook and how much I put in my plate. I know exactly. How does it vary into what you're eating? Um, no, not really. I mean, right. yeah, obviously it's a little bit different if you're eating a slice of pizza than if you're eating a bowl of rice and vegetables. Yeah. Because, you know, you could, cut, you could lump the, 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 the slice of pizza up into a bowl and, uh, right. and kind of make it the same size as your bowl of uh, vegetables and rice. Um, well, this is another factor is um, what's recommended in yoga practices to eat pretty much the same food every day. Not necessarily right. exactly the same ingredients, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the most important uh, um, feature of a yogic diet is the grain. Um, and mostly people eat rice. Uh, you have to discover what works for you. Um, you know, and the, it's said in Ayurveda that you should eat food that's grown close to where you were born or that grows well in the uh, climate where you live. <clears throat> so rice doesn't really grow in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, having said that, most wheat is uh, genetically modified, for instance, and most people have, or many, many people have, um, allergic reactions to wheat because we so overused it so that wheat is no longer really a good product for us yeah. to use. Yeah. Yeah. So rice is typically the, the most, the, you know, the central theme of a yogic diet. Uh, and then varying to some extent the different ingredients, but, you know... That's the case with you. You, may, you would say the staple is the grain, some yeah. kind of grain. Yeah. What, what about the birthing? Because obviously, I mean, if you... you ate stuff close to where you were born, you might be eating a different diet to where you live now. That's, you know, that's a tricky point in that, isn't it? But it, it seems to make sense. Well, it takes about 12 years for your body to change completely. Right, right. So um, once you've been living in another environment for a significant period of time, then the foods which are grown locally are more appropriate for you. Hmm. Hmm. And obviously, you know, you can't be... No one can be perfect in their diet. You have to make compromises. You know, it's said that you should not eat food which has been imported. You should not eat food that's been right. traveled a long distance. Mm. Um, and of course, you shouldn't eat food that has pesticides or it's been uh, processed. Or they say you shouldn't eat reheated food, for instance. It should be fresh. You should cook for yourself. You shouldn't eat food that's been prepared by somebody with very negative emotions or, you know, mm. The, mm. the influence goes into the food as well. So, you know, either you should cook your food or somebody who loves you should cook your food. Uh, or maybe, you know, if you love yourself, you can cook your own food. But, you know, preparing the food is equally important. Uh, how you eat. I heard um, at Osho once, uh, Rajneesh was once yeah. asked about eating. He said, you shouldn't eat your food. You should drink your food. You should chew it so much that it becomes liquid. Oh, okay. And you assimilate it, which I thought was beautiful. Uh, to me, that's... Uh, that, that is a principle that I try to follow as well. That you, no, chew it, you chew it until it becomes liquid. Right. Um, and then how much time do you leave between meals? You know, it's ideally something like five or six hours in between, uh, in between meals so that your digestive system can be at rest in between. Snacking in between is not recommended. Although fruit is said to be, you can eat pretty much at any, any mm. time. But it really also depends on, you know, we're not all full-time yogis. Some of us are, you know, spending more time practicing yoga and meditating and teaching or whatever. And most of our students are 
you know, working on a stock exchange or in a mm. lawyer's office or in the grocery store or wherever. They have other, other um, things that they do with their body. And so they will need different types of diet depending on what kind of jobs they're doing. You know, mm. if you were just uh, sitting around in an office the whole day long, <clears throat> then eating a lot of food would just make you extremely heavy. And, and you know, whereas if you, if you have a highly... Uh, if you're a laborer, for instance, and you're using a physical body uh, intensely, then you need more food. You know, you need more fuel to expand that energy. But again, I, I think it goes kind of circles back to a pragmatic kind of interpretation of an ideal. In a way, you've kind of got an ideal that you mentioned. You've got this ideal of eating like a completely sapphic diet that's unprocessed and grown by your parents or something, right? And then the reality of your life might not allow for that. How do you bridge the gap between a lot of people wanting a certain ideal and falling short, you know? And well, you always have to do the best you can. Right. You can never do better. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, a bit of slack as well. Because I think a lot of Ashtanga people, they really I see that they I want them to push themselves less, you know, as a teacher. You know, as, uh, my main job is actually holding people back, not pushing them more these days, right? I think we've seem to push ourselves very hard and demand inordinate amounts out of ourselves, right? Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that's often the case for me too. Um, mm. Less less is more, less ambition is more. <clears throat> but when it comes to food, I think uh, it's, it's a little bit different because, um, you know, we're very, we're very addictive in our culture. And as you mentioned before, we use food to feed emotions. We use food to, to fill gaps in our, mm. in our, in our in our souls. Mm. Uh, so I think food discipline is actually something that's obviously not for everybody because it could lead to extremes where, mm. you know, there are all kinds of de- eating disorders, which also uh, uh, have very negative impact. But I think, you know, um, I suggest to students to make gradual transitions. So for instance, if a student is a full on red meat eater, uh, rather than go immediately to a raw food diet, uh, I, I suggest, okay, so first shift to white meat and then shift to from six days a week down to three days a week and then shift from white meat to fish and then shift from fish to, you know, so, so it's a gradual transition, so it's not too shocking for the system. And yeah. then... That's a really, isn't it? I think what you're talking about, in the kind of gentle approach that you are, you have and the kind of nuanced approach, that is the positive aspect of the ahimsa, isn't it? Because ahimsa can also be very violent, really. The very wish for a himsa, it can be violent, right? You've got to do this and you've got to do yoga like this, you know, this, you've got to be vegetarian, rather than just kind of gently flowing into the direction that, you know, might be more efficient for the individual. Uh, well, I don't think uh, a himsa could ever be a violent act because the definition of a himsa is non-harming. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the first duty you have is to yourself, to be mm. kind to yourself. You can't really be kind to others until you're kind to yourself. And you know, yoga practice and yoga and the yoga philosophy and all the rules and regulations, even though it looks like a, a kind of social, social rules, it's actually all about how do you put your mind and body into a good condition so that you can meditate. So first thing is be kind to yourself. Uh, you can't be kind to others until you're kind to yourself. If you have a lot of stress within yourself, you're going to be angry, you're going to be cause harm to others. Uh, mm. So you know, that's the first, first step. Um, but another principle in yoga is, I think, 
always gradually, slowly, slowly. That was also Patavi Joyce's approach. Gradually, mm. slowly develop your practice, gradually make transitions, gradually make changes. Because if you go to an extreme, then you'll bounce back in the opposite direction. So if you go very, very strongly in one direction, we know we're kind of elastic and we just, you know, bounce back into the opposite uh, mm. extreme. So it's not sustainable. Well, this has been very enlightening and really interesting, especially the pork balls. <laughs> I'm intrigued by the canning the pork balls of food. I'm going to try that. Um, just to end on a, on a lighter note, um, what, what do you like doing outside yoga? Uh, what's, your, what's the hobby outside meditation and yoga, if you have any time apart from meditation? Uh, well, you know, I've, uh, um, uh, I, I do nature photography. I get out into nature and uh, really enjoy um, doing some kind of something artistic and as well uh, just being out in nature because I live in the city, New York City. Right. So uh, <clears throat> that's an excuse also um, to get into a wholesome environment, which is also a support for yogic practice. Uh I love spending time with my family. I have a young son who's only six months old. And again, I, I, I do see, you know, in a way, it's all yoga. It's all part of the same. Um, mm. But it's obviously not a disciplined um, practice, um, you know, it, but, but it all feeds. Cooking, yeah. uh, preparing food, and uh, all these things are all supportive of yeah. yoga practice and just general health and wholesomeness. You know, it's said in Ayurveda that uh, a healthy person should experience um, four states of consciousness, um, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and samadhi. And uh, if you're in a healthy state, then, uh, um, you know, you'll experience, you'll experience yoga naturally. Uh, so it's not something that uh, necessarily requires a lot of discipline, but if you get yourself into a healthy condition and, uh, in order to do that, you know, you need to sleep well, you need to eat well, you need to get mm. exercise. And the main problem that we have today is that nobody gets proper exercise. Uh, in the old days, if you wanted to, let's say, um, buy something, you'd actually yeah. physically have to go to the shop. You'd have to walk yeah. there. Now you can click and buy it on Amazon. Like, like when we went to my first of all, it was like half my exercise day was bloody washing my clothes. They're like so tiring. Like what hand washing your clothes? Ah, so, you know, it took half the day. Yeah. You didn't need to do any asanas then. Hardly, hardly. You know, it's wringing those clothes out, you know. Yeah, I remember that. The asana practice is really exercise. It's really therapy. That's, what I, that's how I see it. It's not necessarily a spiritual practice. Um, the other aspects can make it spiritual, uh, but the asana practice itself, I think, is, has a very small impact, uh, direct impact, but it can, uh, it, it can prompt you, motivate you to make other steps in life, which are extremely supportive of spiritual practice, like changing your diet and et cetera, et cetera, like getting regularity, getting tapas, getting discipline. Yeah. Those things are definitely supportive of spiritual practice, but doing a handstand and putting your leg behind your head, uh, not so much. Right. Yeah, this seems like an obvious thing, but it's not, you know, that that is good to hear. <laughs> Often it's fused that the spiritual somehow is fused, and you you hear people talking about it being fused into the asana somehow. You know, you practice all the eight limbs within the asana, um, but you feel that there needs to be a meditation practice outside the asana, or something else that that, that denotes a spiritual practice other than just the asana. 
as a spiritual practice? Well, it's a big question. What is spiritual? Um, does it necessarily inquire, require meditation? Um, mm. <clears throat> I think, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, Gandhi uh, practiced uh, ahimsa uh, and that was perhaps all that was necessary. Um, you know, so pursuing any one limb can actually, I think, take you deep into yoga. That includes asana. But it's really more, what's your mindset? And, uh, um, yeah, I'm pretty dubious about uh, anyone who feels like it's all integrated into an asana practice. But I think it's, 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 it's possible. But I think for most people, it's, it's not really. You have to figure out what is, what is spiritual for you first. Rather than sort of just taggle, you know, put all these things together and make it uh, a spiritual thing. Uh, you have to think about a whole new topic uh, for, for a subsequent podcast, I think. Because, yeah, just at the end, hopefully, a whole new can of worms. But we hopefully I'll, we'll be able to chat again at some point, Guy. Um, yeah. Thanks very mm-hmm. much for the time. Um, do you want to say any, um, where, where can people find you apart from just typing into Google the obvious? <laughs> it's the easiest way, right? Yeah, probably, really. These days, don't you just mention a website or anything? So, you're buying Guy Donahue online. I'm sure you're, you're, you have a strong online presence and, uh, and more writing ahead, I hope, to see. I'm yeah. sure. Yes. Thank right. you, Adam. Reading that. Thank you very much, Guy. Mm-hmm.